You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. It's really difficult to overstate how good it is to have a clear, to have clear authoritative instruction on how to live this life and to make it count. It's really difficult to overstate that, just how good it is to have clear instruction on how to live this life and to make it count. I mean, when you think about it, we've got one precious life, one life, and we've got one shot at it, just one shot. And the, the reality is, is that on our own, we struggle so much on our own to figure out what's best, to figure out what's right. And God in his kindness has spoken. He's given us his word so, so that we can know what this life is all about and how to make it count. Without the word of God, we're left figuring out on our own and, or, or looking to other people who themselves are trying to figure it out on their own. And our tendency, I think if we're honest, for lots of us, our tendency in, in making decisions and making choices, often we kind of go with our gut and just sort of go with sort of what we surmise. We rely on our own judgment. And that's a scary thing, actually, when you think of how often we get it wrong, even about really significant things. First Lieutenant Kermit Tyler was the, was the officer on duty at the Radar Information Center at the Naval Base and Air Force Base where he was serving. One morning early, a beautiful morning, two privates reported to him that a large blip had appeared on the radar screen indicating the potential of a, a, a massive uh, number of aircraft heading their way. Now, First Lieutenant Tyler had understood that some of their own, a fleet of their own B-17 bombers were due to arrive at the base later that day and assumed it had to be them. And he said to those privates, these words that became famous, don't worry about it. Well, it turned out it actually was something they should have been worried about. It was not a fleet of B-17 bombers that he thought. The date was 7th of December. 1941, the base where Tyler was stationed was in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor. The blip on the screen was a squadron of Japanese bombers, the first of two waves totaling 353 aircraft that were making their way to bomb the base. And within the next two to three hours, 2,400 people would die. Here's the reality. We can be pretty sure we're right when actually we're wrong. We, we, can be, we can be pretty sure that we've, we've got a handle on things when actually we don't, even when it comes to matters of enormous consequence. I mean, think about your life, this one precious life. Imagine living your life, figuring you've got it figured out, or, or, or thinking, I have probably got a handle on it, only to find when you get to the end that you're dead wrong. Well, loved ones, the Bible is written to prevent that from happening, so that you don't have to guess your way along. You don't have to go with your gut. But you can have authoritative instruction and direction on how to live this life and even what it's for and where it's going. 
And art, we see that throughout the scripture from Genesis through Revelation. The Bible talks about itself as a, as a light for our feet, a lamp for our path showing us the way. And we see that from Genesis through Revelation. But we also see it really specially in our text today. In a short passage of scripture that we'll look at together today, it, it shows us, it gives us a succinct, authoritative instruction and direction on how to live this life and how to make it count. And we will see that I, I'm going to highlight for you two commitments that it calls us to that will really importantly shape your life. And I want you to see it for yourself. Our scripture text is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we're going to focus on verses 9 to 14. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 to 14, it's the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the very end of it. And this is our final sermon in the teaching series we've been doing through Ecclesiastes called Making Sense of Life. Wisdom for the real world from Ecclesiastes. And uh, we've had several sermons. We, of course, we took a break. Uh, we did uh, the bulk of our teaching for a little while back in the summertime. Uh, we took a break to do some other things. But he, uh, this week and the last two weeks previous, we've been finishing up this book. And this is the final sermon in the series. The title of the, of the uh, sermon is The End of the Matter. That's not terribly creative. I just lifted it right out of the text. And, but it's kind of one of those double entendres. I mean, it is the end of the matter. It's the end of the series. But it's also a statement that orients us to the subject of the text, namely the end of the matter, the, the bottom line. Here's the conclusion. Like if you've forgotten most of the rest of what we've said, here's the thing you need to hear. And that's what we have at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I said we're going to study verses 9 to 14, and that's true, but I want to begin reading in verse 8. Because verse 8 reminds us of the huge theme that we've seen throughout this book. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 8, it says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. The, the preacher is this person we've been listening to, we've been reading from throughout Ecclesiastes. We believe it was probably Solomon. Refers to, he's referred to as the preacher or the teacher. And uh, we have observed, as I understand it anyway, the, the background of this book is that this preacher, this teacher, for whatever reason, went on a journey away from God. He went into a, a season in his life of, of spiritual darkness where he ended up distant from God. And maybe, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you know what that's like yourself in your own life. But wonderfully, he came back to God. And having been on this journey... He puts together this journal that is a collection of teachings that really helps us to see some important lessons that he has gleaned, having been through what he's been through and knowing now what he knows. And we have seen this repeated theme that in this world, if you, if apart from God, if you remove God from the picture, what you're left with in this world is what he calls vanity of vanities, that which is fleeting, elusive. It's a, a term that's used about 30 times throughout this book in all but two chapters in Ecclesiastes. It, it talks about that which is meaningless or elusive. It's like, he's like finding purpose and satisfaction and meaning and true fulfillment apart from God. It's like steam from a kettle. You can't, you can't capture it. And it maybe seems to be there for a moment, but then it's, it's gone. Or it's like fog in the morning. To, to, to harness that, it's, it's, it's a futile effort. He's made the point, the observation, that nothing lasts in this world. And everything breaks down, including the residents of this world, the people. 
find true and lasting purpose and satisfaction apart from God, he says, is like chasing after the wind. And that's not to say that there aren't joys to be had in this world. Eating, drinking, enjoying work, times of healing, harvesting, laughing, laughing, dancing, all these things are written about in Ecclesiastes and acknowledge that these are, are joys that, that we experience in this world, whether you're a believer or not, but the reality is, is that they're temporal. And they come and they go, and the lasting effects, well, they dwindle. One has said, in summary, the final destination of God is absent from the scene will not satisfy. This can become overwhelming, and some of you feel this today. You've removed God from the picture. You've grown distant from him, and it can become overwhelming. I mean, think about how much confusion, how much despondency, how many anxieties abound in these days, and it's rooted in the fact that we live in a world, we live in a culture that has erased God from the scene. And we run into real disappointment when we try to make things of this world do for us what only God can do. It's, remember where we began months ago, the, the soundtrack of the, the book of Ecclesiastes of the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. That's that theme of vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. You remove God from the scene, and that's what you're left with, chasing after the wind. But here we come to the conclusion, and it, it may be, there's a couple of different ways you could understand this. It could be that it's an editor who has compiled together the teachings of this preacher and has compiled them together and now here at the end of Ecclesiastes has these concluding remarks, or, or it could be the, the preacher himself. Either way, we come to the end here and he writes for us a conclusion that I think succinctly pulls together the vital message of this book. This is what he says in verse nine. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Don't you love that word? Goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. If a nail is firmly fixed, what is it? It's it's immovable, and it holds that which is holding on to it. It says, Nail, like nails firmly fixed are these collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Notice the capital S. Some of your Bibles will have a capital S there. That's, a, that's the translator signaling to you that they believe that the shepherd in view here is the divine shepherd, like the shepherd. Verse 12, my son. Beware of anything beyond these. Now we say beyond what? Well, the wise, the, the words of wisdom that come from the one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now students in the room, you might want to write that verse down, okay? Much study is a weariness of the flesh. All God's students said, amen, it is. Now here we go, verse 13, the end of the matter. 
Here's the conclusion. So what's, what's all this about? Where, where are we going with this? The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, I want to call this morning every believer to two commitments that I find here in this text. Two commitments that will shape your life, help you order your days, and make the most out of what God has given you. Commitment number one, commit to the sufficiency of God's word. The sufficiency of God's word. If something is sufficient, it's, it's enough. There's more maybe I could have, but this is all I need to have. It's sufficient. The sufficiency of God's word. I get that, especially out of verse 12. That advice to the son, my son, Beware of anything beyond these. What are beyond these? Well, verse 11 is the context. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. The warning is to not go beyond what's written here. It doesn't mean that you, you can't or you shouldn't read more than what's here. Of course, we've got in the Bible, we've got lots more to, to read. It certainly is a comment, though, about the sufficiency of what God says, about what comes from the one shepherd, who I believe, I understand in this context, to be God. Now, verses 9 to 11, it's kind of interesting because it, it helps us to remember that we're reading the Bible, we're reading a book that was written many years ago. Verses 9 to 11 is, it's like an endorsement in our modern context. Like, you know you go to buy a book from Amazon or Chapters and you get that book and on the back dust cover or maybe on the inside, the first few pages, there's oftentimes like quotes there from famous or well-known people, you know, endorsing maybe a line or two saying why this is such a great book and why you need to read it. You know what I'm talking about. So we got endorsements. Well, in the antiquity, you didn't have somebody write in the inside of your book. Things were different then. But what you did is at the end of the book, there would often be a statement or a, a summative endorsement of the book that you have just read. That's what we've got here at the end of Ecclesiastes. Verses 9 and 10 especially, we see that. He's, he's Notice what he says about the, the quality of this book's contents in verse 9. Besides being wise, so the author has, wis has wisdom, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Notice, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. If you're, if you're weighing something, you're pondering, you're evaluating statements. There's a high degree of discernment going on here. You're, you're working it over like a dog chews a bone. You're, you're working over these things. So it's commending the quality of this, of what we've read, that the author thought these things through and, and weighed them. Notice it says too that he studied and arranged. Studying and arranging. It's well-chosen words. It wasn't just slapped together. And, and there's integrity here too. It's, it's a book that is, has well-chosen words. That they're, he's, he's writing with a kind of integrity where he's not writing for shock value. Like, you know, the more scandalous it is, the more eyes get on it. That's not the strategy here. It's truthful. It's, uh, it's, it's clear. It's authoritative. It's careful. This is the idea here. He commends to us, we're commended with the, the book of Ecclesiastes for its quality. And we can say by application, well, in context, it has to do with the book of Ecclesiastes. 
The same is true throughout the rest of Scripture. The Bible is not just slapped together. In fact, we recognize and see that, that there's care and thought. And ultimately, we see there's a divine author to it. He also commends the power of what we're reading here. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. Now, I've mentioned that word a couple times. You know what a goad is, right? It's, it's like um, it's a prod. It's like a sharp-pointed prod that you use to get the animal to move, to get it going along. In fact, sometimes you hear it, right? If you've heard somebody say, you know, so-and-so goaded me into it. It's like you know, they, they knew what buttons to push, and they knew how to, to get at me, to prick me, in order to get me to do something that maybe I wasn't otherwise going to do. Well, God's Word is like that. It's like there's sometimes it encourages us, comforts us, gives us hope, and then sometimes it's, oh, okay, okay, I'll get, I'll get moving there. You want me to go in this direction? Okay, okay, sometimes we find passages like that, that it, it moves us along, and God, get, get going. It's not a harsh thing, but it's a real thing. That's, that's the idea here. He says, the words of the wise are like goads. Get us moving in the right direction. That's what God's word is like, and it's like a, it's like a tent peg. You see that verse 11? Like nails firmly fixed. Now you know what a nail is, but I think of like a tent peg. You drive that spike into the ground and that tent's not going anywhere. You put it in the wall and that picture's gonna hold firm there, hopefully. And, and that's the whole idea is it's, it's firm, it's holding it in place. There's a permanence to God's word. It's an unchanging message that holds those who trust in it. He mentions the authority of, of what he's written here and the authority of God's word in verse 11 Talking about the shepherd, they are given by one shepherd. Now again, I think here that is talking about the ultimate divine author of Scripture. This author here in Ecclesiastes has an awareness, has a knowledge that these things don't just originate with me. The truth that's being taught here, and not only here but in the rest of Scripture, comes from God himself. The shepherd, it's, it's, we see this God referred to as the shepherd again and again in Scripture. Think of like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Or how about Psalm 80 in verse 1? The Lord is the shepherd of Israel. Jesus in John chapter 10 said, I am the good shepherd. I think that's the idea here. It's, it's the Lord is speaking here. And this is the, the best endorsement one could have. It's not the preacher's words. It's God's word. And therefore, he commends the sufficiency of what is written. In verse 12. My son, tender, loving, my son, beware of anything beyond these, beyond what? Beyond the words of the shepherd. There's lots of words out there, lots of opinions, lots of ideas, but beware of them because many of them are not trustworthy. Many of them will mislead you. Many of them are skewed. Many of them are soaked in human wisdom. And he says, you know, you'll wear yourself out with the opinions of people. You'll fatigue yourself. Of the making, verse 12, of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. You'll, you'll wear yourself out with the opinions and ideas and so-called knowledge of this world. And, and there, there will always be, there will always be competing ideas. There will always be contrary uh, concepts and opinions. But not all ideas and opinions are equal. There's a call here to be wise and to be discerning, to invest yourself in that which will benefit you most, namely, ultimately, the Word of God. So while this author here in our text, I think, 
firstly has in view the book of Ecclesiastes, which we've been studying, by application, we are reminded about the sufficiency of Scripture. That God's word is for us enough. Think what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. He said to Timothy this. He said, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from him. It comes from him. That's significant. Like, that's a book I want to read. That's a book that I want to have. What comes from God, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for reproof, that's the goad, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So it's sufficient, it's enough to shape you into the woman, into the man that God has saved you and called you to be. It's enough for you that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible, what the Bible says about itself is profound when it comes to its sufficiency. It's, it's enough. I think of like Proverbs 30 and verse, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Why not add to God's word? Because it's sufficient. It doesn't need your adding. It's, it's enough. Or how about Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19? It uh, certainly, firstly, applies directly to the book of Revelation, but Bible students have noted it again and again. It, you can't miss the fact that it's right at the end of the Bible. Here's what it says. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Sounds serious. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. What is the Lord saying here? My word is good enough as it is. It's sufficient. What we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture is we mean that it is our supreme and final authority on all matters of faith and practice and life. There isn't anything that you must know. There isn't anything that you are required to believe. There isn't anything that you are commanded to do that is missing from this book. It's sufficient. And when you think about the sufficiency of Scripture, it, it reminds us that, listen, we've, what we have in God's Word is indeed enough. I, I don't need another video telling me about the political, cultural moment that we're in. I've got the Word of God that centers me in the realities of heaven and hell and his story of redemption and the mission that I'm on. I don't need another podcast trying to educate me and give me a different opinion or spin on this life that I'm called to live. Those things can be useful, but loved ones, I don't need them. I've got, and that's not a statement of arrogance, it's a statement of faith that God's word is enough. I, I, don't, I don't need to read somebody's book about a vision or dream or out of body experience they've had to demonstrate, to, to confirm for me that heaven is real. I don't need that. I've got the sufficient word of God that confirms to me not only the truth of heaven, but how to get to heaven and to know it for sure. I don't need anybody else's opinion or judgment or gut feeling or dream or vision or anything. I got the scriptures. And loved one, my heart for you, you say you look fired up about this. I am fired up about this. I'm not, because I'm not down on the world out there. They're trying to figure out as it is. But I'm talking to the people of God who've got the spirit of God in them, the word of God in their hands, who are relying on all this stuff to give them light and guidance in their life. Why do you do that? You've got God's word. Now hear me. I'm not down on Christian literature. 
If you've been in my office or you helped move my office from Scott Street to here, you know I like Christian books. There's a place for them, to be sure. But the real value is found in how faithfully they teach and commend the scriptures. And at the end of the day, my first attention and my heart conviction must be that God's word is enough. Is it? Do you believe, loved one, do you believe in the sufficiency of God's word? Do you? You say, well, how would I know? Well, you'll be in it. You'll be inclined toward it, not on our own. We don't naturally desire these things. God works in us to desire his word, to give us a taste for his word. Loved one, this is a commitment. This is a life-shaping commitment to believe, to be committed to the sufficiency of God's word, believing that it is enough for me to find my way in this world, to understand what my life is about and how to make it count. Now, in verses 13 and 14, we've got really his summative concluding command where we get another commitment that I want to highlight for you. Look what he says again in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In fact, that word duty there could be an insertion. I think there's, there's clarity here. I think it's correct. But the, the weight of that sentence is that this is the whole of man. This is your life. It's to live for God. Verse 14, for God will bring, notice this, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Commitment number one, to be committed to the sufficiency of God's word. Commitment number two, to be committed to the priority of God's will. The sufficiency of God's word and now the priority of God's will. We're called to live for him. Notice that phrase, fear God. See that in verse 13? Fear God. This is talking about having a healthy fear of God. To fear God in scripture is to revere him, to honor him, to love him. It's not a cowering fear of distance, but rather a loving fear like a child with a loving, truly loving father. There's affection there, but there's also a kind of reverence because there's authority and there's accountability there. That's the idea here. It is at its root, I believe that the fear of God is the conviction that you have in your heart that God is God and that God is good and that God is great. It's a conviction in your heart to fear him. Many people, many professing Christians, listen, many professing Christians do not live in the fear of God. And you say, well, isn't that an Old Testament thing? No. No, it's a following Jesus thing. Matthew 10 and 28, Luke 12 and 5, Jesus calls on us to fear God, to fear him. Peter repeats that in 1 Peter 2 and 17, calling us to fear, calling on us to fear God. Revelation 14 and 7, the angels proclaim to the nations, fear God and give him glory. Many professing Christians do not live in the fear of God. It's not as bad as you think, buddy. It's okay. Because <laughs> some dismiss it as some antiquated idea. 
and God becomes your buddy or the man upstairs. There is no friend like Jesus, but he's not your pal. He's God. Many Christians live as if it doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what they do. They don't live in the fear of God. They live as if what they believe about God isn't really true. You say, how do you figure? Well, lots of Christians that quietly in their hearts harbor bitterness and jealousy as though God can't see that. But of course he can. Many Christians will, behind closed doors in privacy, which just may be a few, speak bitter, harsh words, yelling, maybe even throwing things. Behind closed doors, why? Why? Why not just come do it at church? Why not just, why not just show, us, show us what you do at home? Well, because it's embarrassing. So why do you do it? Well, I do it because there's no one else there. Yeah, but God's there, isn't he? Doesn't he see? Or how many people are in bondage today to pornography? People even right here in this room. Why not invite us all over to watch with you? Why not just have me over? Well, you wouldn't go for that. You're right, I wouldn't. But why do you do it? Why do you do it alone in the privacy of your room in your basement? Well, because nobody else is there and nobody's looking. Do you believe that? That nobody else is there? Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that nobody, nobody else is looking? You believe in God, don't you? You believe in a God who is everywhere present, don't you? You believe in a God who is all-knowing, don't you? Or do you? Is that just what you say when you're up at the church? Or do you believe that? You know, see, what you need, dear friend, is a fresh infusion, maybe even for the first time, of a healthy fear of God. That God is God, and he sees and he knows, and there ain't any fooling him. We treat God often like he's a fool. Because we carry on in ways that displease him and dishonor him. When these things ought to break our hearts. And the knowledge of the fact that he's there. And he sees. And he knows. Do you see what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying here? Do you see what the Holy Spirit is saying here? Fear God. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Have a healthy fear of him, this conviction that he is God. When I have a fear of God, I have a knowledge of the fact that he is there, that he sees, and it matters what I do. But I got a, a healthy fear of God, too. I, I'm firstly concerned and foremostly concerned about what he thinks, irrespective of what other people think. Now, balance, that can go too far. Some people, there's a handful of people, maybe even here, who need to think a little bit more about what other people think in terms of being considerate and, and kind. But for lots of us, that, that isn't the ditch we fall into. It's the other one of being way too concerned about what people think, irrespective of what God thinks. Loved ones, loved ones, your life, your life, it's like you're on a stage. And before you is a theater full of seats. And when you know Jesus, all those theater seats are empty save one, and that's Jesus. You live your life for an audience of one. But what we do 
is we often fill those seats with other people, and all of a sudden, the opinion of Jesus diminishes as the opinions of people in our sight rises and increases. And let me ask you, how joyful is that? How, how, how life-giving is that? How exhausting is that? And how way far off the mark is that? Fear God and keep his commandments, the author says. When I fear God, I live for an audience of one. I live with the conviction that he sees and he cares what I do. Do you live with that conviction? Commitment number two, the priority of God's will. Fear him. Obey him. See that in the, in the verse 13 again? Fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, obey him. Do what he says. Now, wonderfully, in Jesus, here's, the, here's one of the many, many amazing things about being a Christian. When you come to know Jesus, because of his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin. So your sins are forgiven. And not only that, when your sins are forgiven, you come to know Jesus, he gives you, God gives you the Holy Spirit who resides in you to give you the desire to live for him and the power to obey him. So walking in obedience even today or tomorrow, if God gives us tomorrow, is not something you just sort of conjure up and do on your own. No, it's something that God helps you with. He empowers you to do. But we must do but we do so in the power that God supplies. It's the wonderful, sanctifying power of God. So you read this phrase here, fear God and keep his commandments. And dear Christian, we know enough to know in Jesus that that call to keep his commandments is not a burden, but it's a delight because of the work of the Spirit in us. To give us the desire to do it, to give us joy in doing it, and to help us to actually do it. But we must do it. We're called to it. I must make it my priority to know what God wants. I must make it my priority to love what God wants and to see it in action in my life. Fear him, obey him. Fear him, obey him. And understand this, that at the end of the day, everything you do matters. Everything you do matters. To be called to, com to be committed to the priority of God's will means that everything I do, everything I say in my life actually matters. And I see that in verse 14. For God will bring, notice, every deed into judgment. See, God cares what you do. I think, in a way that maybe you maybe wouldn't land on this right away, I think that this is one of the most will be one of the, for some of you, will be one of the most encouraging verses you've heard this year. Because there's some of you that struggle with finding a purpose in your life. And you've hauled yourself in here this morning by God's grace, and I'm so glad you're here. But there is a, a killer question that is boiling beneath the surface in your heart, wondering in your life if there's any point to it at all. Does it even matter if I get out of bed today? Does anybody even care? Is there even a point? And yeah, yeah, okay, I know you're going to tell me there's a point and everything like that. But in my heart, just don't feel like it matters. This verse here, while it's in one sense a little scary, in another sense, it's glorious. Because it's telling you that there is a God who sees what you do and he cares what you do so that Everything in your life matters. 
Your life matters. Even things you might think are trivial or meaningless. Every conversation you have, every test you write, every meal you cook, every diaper you change, every drive you make, every word you speak, every song you sing, every thought you dwell on, every vacation you take, every nail you hammer in, every day you show up at work, all of it matters. It's incredible. It's incredible. All of a sudden, my life matters. What others might think is a boring, mundane life, God cares about it. And he don't care what others think. He's the judge. I just find this so encouraging. It's the motivation to, to go that it counts. It, it matters. Everything counts. I just, it just, I can't, I wish I could say to you how much this just blows my mind. For God will bring every deed into judgment. Okay, now that's scary. Into judgment. It's scary because you realize that we're talking every deed. I mean, I got some good moments. But I've also got some not good moments. And I've read the Bible enough to know that I was born in not good moments mode. It's a real problem. That word judgment's a real problem when you realize the judge is a holy God and you're not holy. So it's sobering. Because like my life counts, God cares what I do. But if you know Jesus, it's a whole different thing. Because for someone who knows Jesus and has their sins forgiven, if you trust in Jesus and your sins are therefore then forgiven, then judgment means for you something very different. I admit it's awesome and a little scary, but when you read the Bible carefully, you realize that judgment for the person who's in Jesus is actually something you can anticipate and not dread. You say, what do you mean? Well, because the Bible talks about for the believer, the kind of judgment that the believer faces is not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of commendation. Your sins are already been, have already been punished, already been paid for by Jesus. So when you come before God, it's not for judgment, dear Christian, but it's for reward. For welcome into his eternal kingdom. The Bible talks about rewards that God has for us. I just think to myself, probably Jesus will be enough. But even more than that, God has ways and means of rewarding his people that heaven will tell. But when we come before this judge... We will find that he is good and he is God and we will be glad that we've lived our life trusting in Jesus. So for you and I, dear Christian, when we think about this this statement here, he'll bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. For the Christian, there is a motivation here to live for God, not out of fear that he'll judge me and send me to hell, but a motivation to live for him because I love him. And he sees what I do and will reward me in Jesus. I, I obey him. The, the Jesus says, he says to his followers, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. I love Jesus. With the love he's put in my heart. John says, 1 John 5 and 3, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. See, we do what he says because we love him. and we, It brings us joy to honor him. And we're grateful to him. And he encourages us along with a promise of rewards to sweeten the deal, to get us to do it. You see, dear friend, your life matters, everything. As I was preparing this sermon, 
I was reminded of, I remembered a, um, a conversation I had with a young man many years ago. I'd been speaking at a Bible camp, at an overnight Bible camp. And um, admittedly, there's much that I don't remember about this particular night. I don't remember what I taught on. I assume it was Jesus and from the Bible. Um, I'm quite certain of that. And to be honest, too, I don't remember lots of the conversation, but I do recall the conversation. And as best I can recall, I remember some particulars out of it. His name was Mark, and he was a young man. He was maybe about 18 years old. And as I recall, he had stayed behind after the chapel session because he wanted to talk about his life and to pray. And as we sat there, as we sat there talking, my recollection was basically he had a couple of things on his heart. He wanted to know that his sins were forgiven. And he wanted to make his life count for God. And so we, we, we talked together and we prayed together. And I honestly don't remember exactly what I told him. I'm just the best of my recollection. A year later, I went back to that same camp and a young woman came to me and said, I want to thank you so much for taking time to speak to my friend Mark last summer. Now, I had to take a minute. I didn't even know at first who she was talking about. Like, Mark, last summer. And she kind of reminded me, she jogged my memory a little bit about the circumstances and the person and what was going on. I mean, oh, yeah, you know what that's like, right? It starts coming back to you and you sort of piece it together. And yeah, I, I do remember. I remember having that conversation with him and, and just sharing God's word and the hope that we have in Jesus. And he, he wanted to make his life count. She said, Mark tragically and suddenly died a few months ago. But she said that conversation with him had a profound, profound impact on the rest of the path that he had before him. Now, just as an aside, strong encouragement to you, brother, sister. You just don't know. When God puts someone in your life, you can share the hope of Jesus with them in a word. You just don't know what might be coming that you will be glad that you did. I'm grateful for having had that conversation. But I think about that story this morning in relation to this text, and the reality is, is that you and I don't know how much road we have ahead of us. Whether you're 18 or 80, we just don't know. We go one day at a time. But by God's grace, you want to make your life count for him. And if you do, I have two strong exhortations for you. Commit to the sufficiency of God's word and commit to the priority of doing God's will. If you commit to the sufficiency of God's word, here's what it looks like. You will be in God's word. You'll be in it. You say, Ross, I tried that, and I struggle with it. I totally hear you. Let me give you some pastoral advice. Here's one thing you can do. And this is so easy, it's almost ridiculous. But bring your Bible to church. Bring your, now, if you use like an app or something, I'm totally cool with that. I'm not down that. That's great. Bring it. Whatever it is that you read the Bible, whether it's on a screen or on paper, I'm kind of I'm kind of old school. I like I like the book thing, but bring it, bring it, because it is an expression of the fact that you believe that God's word is enough for you. This is what I need. You say, how is an expression of that? Because there's something that happens, and I don't want to get all mystical or weird, but I do believe this. There's something that happens when you're sitting under the teaching of God's Word, and you've got your own copy of God's Word in your hand. There's something that happens that just the way the Lord works sometimes, you, it just takes root more. 
when you see it on the page in front of you in your own Bible, you can mark that verse and, and maybe make a, a note about it. And so bring your Bible to church. Bring it, bring it. Another thing you can do is to bring something to write with, like to write things down. Now, some people around you, you see, and you look at them and you're totally intimidated. You're like, that person sitting in front of me, they're writing a novel there. It's like, bless them. They're showing you the way, right? I love those people. But you don't have to write a novel. For you, it might be just something that you hear, something you see in the Bible as you're sitting on the teaching God's word. You're just like, oh, that is something I need to think about more. Or that's something I want to remember. And you write it down. I find if I write it down, there's a significantly greater chance that I'm going to remember it later. And you're going to think about that. Be in God's Word. Bring your Bible to church. You know what else you could do? I want to challenge you to study God's Word. Say, study God's Word. I didn't go to Bible college. You don't have to go to Bible college to study God's Word. You know how you study God's Word? It's way simpler than you think. What you do to study God's Word is you read it, ask questions about it, and then write some things down. That is studying. Like, seriously? Seriously. Read a Bible text. Take a passage of scripture that's going to be manageable for you. If you're a beginner, take what's manageable for you. And ask some questions about it. You say, what kinds of questions? Questions like these. Like, what does this text show me about God? What does this text show me about myself? Is there a sin here that I'm reading about that I need to confess? Is there an example in here that I need to follow? Or an example I should not follow? Is there a prayer here that I need to pray, that I should pray? Maybe there's something here about which I need to praise God. Is, is, there, is there maybe an error for me to avoid or a truth that I need to understand? Asking questions like this helps you to think about what it is you're reading. And then what you do with that magic, it's this amazing device, a pen or a pencil, even a crayon. And you write it down and you think about it and you talk to God about it. Be in God's word. Bring your Bible. Be in it. Study it. Ask some questions about it. That is an expression, a legit expression of believing in the sufficiency of God's word. And then, of course, doing what God commands, doing what he desires. Ask yourself this question. Whose opinion matters most, really? Like, be clear. Whose opinion about you matters most. And be honest. What areas or what area in my life right now is not marked by a healthy fear of God, a pattern of obedience, or even an attitude that demonstrates everything matters? Let me pray about this together right now.